0: And this morning we're gonna finish up Romans chapter 11. And I wanna talk from Romans chapter 11 about ethnicity and culture. Now when I said that, maybe a chill ran down your spine or maybe you got really excited or maybe most of you are a little anxious about what I'm gonna say. But regardless of how your reaction was, to talking about culture and ethnicity, I'm willing to bet you weren't thinking about Jewish people. And it's interesting that in most of our conversation about ethnicity and culture in the church, we tend to neglect the most predominant culture and ethnicity in the entire Bible, the culture and ethnicity of the Jewish people, of the Israelites, the very culture and ethnicity of our Lord and Savior and His twelve apostles, and most of the early church. I remember reading the Bible, you know, as a young believer. I became a Christian in college, and I'm flipping through the Bible, and I remember thinking to myself, there's no Chinese people in here. What's the deal? Then I realized, well, there's no Scottish people in there either, or Puerto Ricans or Kenyans. The main people on every page, as the good guys and the bad guys, as the rich and the poor, as the faithful and the unfaithful, the main ethnicity and culture in the Bible were the Israelites, the Jews. Why? Well, because God chose the Israelites to play a special role in redemptive history, a special role in his unfolding plan of redemption. And I would argue we can't understand anything substantive about the New Testament until we understand it through the eyes of Christ and his Jewish background and his understanding of the Old Testament, his understanding of the place of Israel and God's purposes in Israel. So I want to look today at the special role that Israel and the people of Jewish descent play in the plan of God. And I hope that as we work through this passage, we'll end the way that Paul ends, rejoicing in the glory and wisdom of God, rejoicing in the glory and wisdom of God. So read along with me. This is chapter 11 of Romans, verses 25 to 36. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient. In order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift? To him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be glory forever. Amen. Paul is wrapping up an argument he begins in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 through 11 is the Apostle Paul working out in real time how God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Romans eight twenty eight. Now, maybe you've been in a dark time, you've been in a difficult trial, or you have suffered, and you've been on the receiving end of that verse in maybe a very trite way. You're going through something difficult, and someone says, well, all things work together for good. And you're just like, it takes everything in you not to, like, punch him in the face. You're like, why would you say that? It can be trite. It can, be, it can feel like a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. And unfortunately, we can misuse that verse or use it and apply it in the wrong time. But Just because it can be misapplied or brought up at the wrong time doesn't mean it's untrue. It's still true that God works all things, all things for the good of those who love him. And what Paul is doing in Romans 9 through 11 is he's putting his money where his mouth is. He is saying, I'm going to apply Romans 8.28 to the deepest pain and tragedy in my own life. That my very own people, the Israelites, my kinsmen, my family, my blood, the people I love and I grew up with, have rejected the Messiah. That the vast majority of my own people have rejected their very own Messiah. And this is a deep tragedy. Paul even says if I could switch places, if I could be cursed and cut off so that my brethren would be saved, I would take that deal. I would do it. He's full of anguish over the rejection of the gospel by his own people. And yet, as he works through it theologically, as he's thinking through the ways of God, he realizes that just when everything seems to be falling apart, God is actually putting everything together. That there is a mystery that God is actually working the mass rejection of the gospel by his own people to bring about a greater salvation for the world that will one day also bring about salvation for his people. And if this is true, that God can work the mass rejection of Christ by the Israelites for good. How much more is it true for us in all of our trials? Because God works all things for good, we can rejoice in his plan and his purposes. So I want to look at this passage and work through, step by step, the argument that Paul is making. The argument he's making about God's purposes and his plan regarding Jews and Gentiles. The first thing we learn is that God works Israel's rejection for Gentile, that's non-Jewish, salvation. He works Israel's rejection for Gentile salvation. If you look at verse 25, at the very beginning of this section, Paul begins with a call to humility. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles Has come in. So you have to remember that the book of Romans is not a systematic theology. It's a letter. It's a letter from an apostle. It's really a fundraising letter. Paul is writing to Rome. He's saying, You guys haven't met me, but I'm going to introduce myself, tell you the gospel that I'm preaching, and I'm hoping that you'll be a base for me to go and plant churches in Spain, and that you can help me and support me with that. And here's a little website you can donate online. Right, at the end. So he's asking for their support. And he's also dealing with a young church with Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So you got Jewish Christians. These are people, ethnically Jewish, who have believed in the Messiah. But they're the, a very small minority. And then you have Gentile Christians. These are people a month ago, they were worshipping idols and sacrificing to pagan gods. And now they're Christians. And you have both of these groups in the same church now. And when you have that Tensions arise. Tensions arise. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the gospel came to the Jew first and then the Greek. So you can imagine if you're a Jewish Christian, you're like, did you hear that? Jew first. We were the first. But then the Gentile Christian go, yeah, you were the first, and then you rejected it, and now we have taken your place. We believed. You guys messed up your chance. You can see that tension, that pride. But then, at the beginning of Romans 11, Paul says, stop talking like that. And he looks to the proud Gentile and says, if you don't think, if God is going to cut off Israel for unbelief, he'll cut you off too, especially if you keep talking like that. Right? He is trying to show them That the point isn't what kind of branch you are in the olive tree. That's the model he uses. There's an olive tree, and there are natural branches. Those are ethnic Jews. And then there are wild branches that are grafted on. Those are the Gentiles, most of us in this room. And he says, it doesn't matter what kind of... It's not about what kind of branch you are, natural or unnatural. What matters is the root that you're connected to, Jesus Christ. That's what matters. So Israel, don't use the fact that the Gentiles came later as an excuse for your pride, and Gentiles don't use the fact that Israel rejected the Messiah as pride for you. What matters is Jesus Christ. So be humble. Be humble. And be aware. Be aware of this mystery. God has hardened a part of Israel. That's a way to understand a partial hardening, that part of Israel has been hardened in their heart the gospel. This is important because Romans 11 begins by answering this question. If the Jews have rejected Christ, does that mean Christ has rejected the Jews? And Paul resoundly says, by no means, absolutely not. Because first of all, I'm Paul, I'm a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, and I believe. God has preserved a believing remnant in Israel who has come to Christ. So you can think about Israel, there's two circles. There's all of Israel, and then there's believing Israel in the middle. And what God is saying is, there's a small remnant that believes, but this larger one, this larger part, has been hardened. But notice, who has hardened them? It's God. God is the one who has hardened them, which means this, the rejection of the Messiah by the vast majority of Israel in Paul's time is not a freak accident. It is not as though God sent Christ, they rejected him, and he's like, what am I going to do? I'm just gonna, maybe I'll just send the message to the Gentiles. It's not plan B. God has purposed the hardening of part of Israel against the Messiah, against the gospel, as the means through which he will save Gentiles. Now, this hardening is not the result of people and their sin thwarting the plan of God. It is the plan of God. No one can thwart the plan of God. And this was Israel's purpose from the beginning. If you remember, Israel's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather is Abraham, who was a pagan. And God chose Abraham and said, I want you to be my guy. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you a family. And that family is going to bless all the families of the world. Through your family, all the families of the world will be blessed. And that's the task of Israel. They are to be a light to the Gentiles, to disciple the Gentiles, to tell them how to follow the Lord. But they failed. And instead, the story of the Old Testament is what? Israel is infected with the same disease that the rest of the world is, with sin and idolatry. And Israel, instead of leading the nations to worship God, are led by the nations to worship their gods. And that's the story of the Old Testament. And the question becomes, does their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Does Israel's failure to do what they were called to do mean that God's plan to save the Gentiles is over? And Paul says in Romans 3.3, absolutely not. Does their, unfaith- their, their unfaithfulness does not nullify God's faithfulness. God is going to bring his light to the Gentiles through the rejection of the gospel by the Israelites. And this falls right in line with Jesus' own words in Luke 21:24. He says that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jesus lays out this timeline. He says, This temple is going to be brought down. And the destruction of that temple will usher in a new age of history called the times of the Gentiles. And this is what happened. Forty years after the death and resurrection of Christ, the Romans, a bunch of Gentiles, trampled underfoot the entire city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And it is still underfoot beneath Gentiles today. It's still in ruins underneath a mosque. So this was God's judgment for the rejection of Christ, a judgment on Jerusalem, which ushers in a new period of history called the times of the Gentiles. If you read the end of the book of Acts in Acts 28, Paul is preaching to these rulers in the synagogues, and he's reasoning with them, and a small minority believe, but the vast majority of these Jewish leaders reject him. And, and Paul pronounces a judgment on them, and he says this, now salvation will be preached to the Gentiles. There's a turning away now out towards the nations, and this falls in line with Jesus' timeline. There is a time of the Gentiles we are currently in, ushered in by the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. What does this all mean for us? It means that history has a purpose. It's not just one event after another. God is working all of human history toward a particular end. He's working all of human history toward a particular end. And he does this in a particular pattern, in a particular way. You think back to Romans 9. Paul says that God hardened a Gentile's heart, Pharaoh. Pharaoh's a Gentile. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. And through the hardening of this Gentile's heart, what happens? The Israelites find salvation. They're freed. And he does a reverse exodus now. Now it is the Israelites whose hearts are are hardened, that the Gentiles might find salvation. So this is the pattern that God is working. He is working the very failure, so to speak, of Israel to be the means by which Gentiles will come in to the kingdom. It doesn't mean that Israel's rejection is good. It doesn't mean that bad things are good. It means that God works bad things for good. And we see this in this passage. So Jesus didn't fail in his mission by getting crucified because his crucifixion and death are the gateway to resurrection. He did not fail by being rejected by the Jews because it was a gateway for the nations to be saved. Israel failed to reach the Gentiles, and yet God, in his sovereignty, works their failure to save Gentiles. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. If, God, if God's plan depended upon our faithfulness, it would never go forward. But if God is in control, sovereign over every detail of human history, then his purposes are not a matter of whether but when, or maybe in what way, but they are sure to happen. All of us in this room, most of us in this room, owe our salvation to the fact that Christ was rejected by the Jews and crucified by the Romans. We are sitting in these pews today because Jesus' mission failed. And faith means not being wise in your own sight, not knowing that you can figure out the ways of God, but that God is working in a thousand ways that we can't see. But the faithlessness and unfaithfulness of men never nullifies the faithfulness of God. And we see that applied to one of the most dramatic and tragic events In Paul's own life. So God works Israel's rejection for Gentile salvation. But he didn't just stop there. He actually works Israel's rejection also for Israel's salvation. He works Israel's rejection for Israel's salvation. Paul's not content as just having Gentiles come in. But he says in Romans 11.11, The Jews rejected the gospel. It goes to the Gentiles. And once the Gentiles believe, it's going to make Israel jealous. It's going to make Israel jealous. And then we see here in verse 26 that God hardens Israel, the fullness of Gentiles come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. In this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled about what the definition of all Israel means. Does this refer to all Israel? Ethnic Jewish Israelites, or some of them, or a large number of them? Is this the entire nation-state of Israel, the geopolitical entity? Does it refer just to a spiritual way of referring to the church of Jews and Gentiles? A lot of smart people disagree. I think you could go any of those ways. But for the purpose of this, I think it's a reference to a large majority of ethnic Jews a large majority of ethnic Jews, for this reason. Paul, when he says there's a hardening on a part of Israel, is talking about ethnic Israel. So to me, I think he's still referring to that people when he says all Israel will be saved. I think he's talking about a large portion of ethnic Jews coming to salvation. So if we put this together, and this, is, this could go a bunch of different ways, but it seems like God removes his partial hardening, or the hardening releases after the fullness of Gentiles comes in. And then the Gentiles coming in somehow brings about salvation of people of Jewish descent. And I'll I'll tease that out a little further in a moment. But it's also important to recognize what Paul says in verse 28. Regarding the gospel, Israel is an enemy. And this is what's happening Paul is being persecuted by Jews, being thrown out of synagogues. Um, There's Jewish persecution happening to the early church. So regarding the gospel, he's like, yeah, they're against us. We're, We're proclaiming a Messiah that they reject. But then he says this, but regarding election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Now, Romans is very clear. Being Jewish does not save you. Being a part of any ethnic group does not save you. But just because being Jewish doesn't save you doesn't mean that being Jewish is irrelevant. Paul even says in Romans 3.3, what is the advantage of being Jewish? Much in every way. They were given the oracles of God. They were given the scriptures. They were given a purpose and a mission. And he says this, that God calls them beloved for the sake of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob. And the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What are the gifts and the calling of God that God gave to them? Well, it's what Paul lists out in Romans chapter 9, in the very beginning. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, the patriarchs, and Christ himself were all given to the Jewish people. And so it's not as though God gives them all these gifts and goes, I'm just going to forget about you now because you have rejected me. Now he says they're beloved because God has gifted them, has given them irrevocable gifts, and loves them for the sake of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he talks about their election. Now, this election is not referring to, you know, the Calvinist, before all time, chosen. He's talking about within history, God chooses, elects a nation out of many. And that chosen, elect nation are the Jews, the Israelites. Israel was chosen out of all the nations to receive the glory, the covenants, the law, all these things. No other nation was given this privilege. And he gave it to them, not because they were worth it, not because of their might or their strength, but out of his grace. Israel's election is by grace. They were God's chosen people out of his pure kindness, not because of their worthiness. God is not fair. He gives Israel a privileged status he doesn't give to anybody else. And they are not to take that as a source of pride, but a source of gratitude. God, you have chosen us and we don't deserve it. We want to be faithful to you. Now, this does not mean, I think, today, that Israel, today as it exists, is a special nation or that they do everything right or that you know, the Israeli government does everything perfect or they can't be criticized or anything like that. I don't think there's a temple being built underground. I don't think any of these things. But I think at the very least, we have to say that people of Jewish ethnic descent, the Jewish people, still have a part to play in the mystery of God's plan, and they are still considered beloved by God for the sake of their forefathers. That doesn't mean that they're saved by God because of the sake of their forefathers, but that there is a place for them in the plan of God. Or maybe to put it this way, the kingdom of God will not be complete until his first people, until Israelites are brought back in. Alistair Roberts, who's an Anglican theologian, illustrates it like this. Imagine if England seceded from the United Kingdom. They left. The United Kingdom would still exist, but it would be missing a vital component. It would be missing the center of what made it the United Kingdom. And in the same way, the Kingdom of God still exists, even though the mass number of Jews have rejected Him, but it's not going to reach its fullness until they return until they come back to Christ. And Israel's salvation is always through Christ. This is the quotation. The Deliverer will come from Zion, and He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So the only salvation that's possible is salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. There's no second track for Israelites. It is always through the Messiah. So God says that they will turn back to Him. Now, When does this happen? Well, there's different debates. Some people think that in the future, once the fullness of Gentiles comes in, there will be a mass conversion of ethnic Jews to Christ. That's possible. Another way is to say that he's saying that conversions of Jews will run parallel to the conversion of Gentiles. In other words, when he says in verse uh, 26, or before that, a hardening has come upon Israel. Gentiles are coming in. And as Gentiles come in, Jews also will start to come in. The hardening will loosen. That there will be parallel tracks. That it is through the reception of the gospel from Gentiles that Jews will begin to trust in Christ. I'm not 100% sure which one's right. I would lean towards the second portion. I think it's through Gentiles coming, becoming saved that Jews begin to come to Christ, but I don't know. It's a debated, contested passage. It's difficult to interpret. But it is interesting to note that more Jews have come to Christ in the 20th century than in the first 19. And the 20th century is also the century of the greatest missionary outreach and revivals in America, in South America, Africa, and Asia, and even in the Middle East. And it is peculiar that this mass conversion of these gentiles are happening parallel to a seeming mass conversion of jews now does that mean that that's what this verse says i don't know but it is interesting to note and it does bring us back to the fact that we're not talking about a random collection of cool tips on how to help your anxiety and your marriage we're talking about human history this is happening around us this is real and it's happening God is putting things together when everything seems to be falling apart. Now, I remember preparing for this, and I'm like, okay, how do I apply this today? Who are the modern-day Gentiles, and who are the modern-day Jews? And then it occurred to me, we are the modern-day Gentiles, and the Jews are the modern-day Jews. There is a very direct application here. We're room mostly filled with Gentiles. And if the Jews are beloved by God for the sake of their forefathers, they should be beloved to us. There should be a compassion and a love and a desire for the Jewish people to turn to their Messiah, to turn to Christ. That should be something that we pray for. That should be a mission endeavor that we support. That should be something that we consider as we consider our neighbors. We should have an affection for the Jewish people. Again, it doesn't mean that the state of Israel is always right or that we can't criticize them or there haven't been wrong things done. But it's simply the main claim of saying if God says they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, we should have that attitude towards them as well. We should have that attitude towards them as well. If they are beloved by God, they should be beloved by us. And the most loving thing you can do for anyone, Jew or Gentile, is to share Christ, is to pray for them to come to Christ. And I hope that that becomes a heart for us, that we would simply apply what he's saying here, us Gentile Christians, to have a heart and a love the Jewish people. So God works Israel's rejection for Gentile salvation, and then he works Israel's rejection for their own salvation, and he works both, the salvation of Jews and Gentiles for his glory. This is where it all comes together. He works the salvation of Jews and Gentiles together for his glory. The gospel is not just about reconciling man to God, but men to one another. Human beings to one another, people to one another. Paul writes in Romans three twenty nine to 30, is God the God of Jews only? Is he the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. God from the beginning intended that all the nations would know him as their God. So he's saying, here's how you preach the gospel. You tell those nations with all their false gods, There is only one God, and he is their God. Those other gods, they're false. They're not real. They have no sovereignty. The one true God of the Israelites is the true God of the Gentiles. And you tell them that. So that the peoples of the world might be grafted in. The gospel came to the Jew first in order that it might go to the Gentiles. So that God's original purpose to forge one new man out of two people would come to pass. Now notice the cultural distinctions are not erased. Jews are still Jews, Paul still refers himself as a Jew, and gentiles are still gentiles, but they are relativized. You don't just become one undifferentiated mass. We're just going to get away do away with being Jew or gentile. It's, no, you're still a Jew, you're still a gentile, but now you're brothers, you're family. Think about what think about an uh, an adoptive family. You have a child that is biologically a child, and then one, a child by adoption. They may come from two different bloodlines. But why are they united? What unites them as a family? They bear their father's name. They have the same last name. That's what unites them as a family. What happens in baptism? You're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father puts his name on you. The Son, the Spirit, the Godhead puts His name upon you. And that is what unites us. Despite our cultural differences, our ethnic differences, we have the same last name. The waters of baptism, it's been said, are thicker than blood. The waters of baptism are thicker than blood. This leaves no room for boasting in self and makes room to boast in God. Right? Paul says, are you a proud Gentile? Well, remember, verse 30, At one time, you were disobedient. And the rejection of the gospel that you feel proud that you didn't do, you look at the Jews, they rejected the gospel, you feel proud. You wouldn't even have the gospel if they hadn't rejected Christ. And by the way, they're now currently disobedient. Remember when you were disobedient? What did God do? How did God treat you? He showed you mercy. Well, the Israelites, they're disobedient, but God will show them mercy. And by the way, I've shown you mercy that you might be a vessel of mercy to them. Don't resent Israel. Don't resent one another. Your ethnicities are there for the sake of one another, not for vanity. You both have a part to play. And this is why it's so powerful. What does God do? He purposes Gentile and Jewish disobedience in order that he might what? Have mercy upon all. You're both sinners. You have both fallen short. You have both sinned. You're both worthy of judgment. And yet, you are both able to receive the gospel. You are both people who can be forgiven and loved and part of the family of God. God has consigned them all to disobedience that that he might have mercy on them all. Who could have planned it like this? God, only God. God. This is why Paul ends and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. No one, could have, no one can counsel him. No one could have thought this up, showed the schematics and submitted it to God, and he might do it. No one can know his mind. And no one can repay him for this gift. He could work a thousand years of perfect obedience. He would never repay God for his grace. This theology should not make you proud. It should make you sing. That's what theology should do. And Paul works through this, and he ends with this doxology. Why? Because God wants us to know that it is all him. All him. Salvation comes from him. He's the source. Through Him, He's the means of salvation, and to Him, the end of salvation. And this is why Paul's joy is in God Himself, not merely His benefits. Sometimes you hear a testimony: "You know, I came to Jesus, and it fixed my marriage, gave me peace, brought me community, gave me a purpose, got me off this addiction, cleared my conscience, made me feel great about being forgiven." Those are all wonderful, but they're not the point. They're not the point. The great gift of the gospel is God Himself that he gives himself to you in Christ by his Spirit. The wonderful thing is not merely being forgiven, but who forgives us. God forgives us. It's not just that you have a community. We are God's community. We're God's family and people. It is about him. He is central. That is the joy, and that is the joy of Paul. Everything leads up to the praise of who he is. Let's not roll our eyes at what Paul rejoices in election, Israel, prophecy, end times, all this stuff. Why are we talking about this? And it's like, well, because Paul talks about it. And it makes him sing with joy. And it should make us sing with joy. If it matters to God, it should matter to us. And Paul's theology animates his joy and his life. You know, the the rest of uh, the book of Romans, chapters 12 to 16, it's a bunch of instructions about how to love each other, serve each other, care for each other, and use our gifts to build one another up. That's the rest of Romans. But you can't skip 1 through 11 and just go there. Romans 1 through 11 animates and gives life to the love that we display in the church. Romans 1 through 11, this dense doctrine about justification and Abraham and in Christ and in Adam and righteousness and all these different things. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Because an understanding of this, as it renews our minds, as Romans 12 tells us, pushes us into a life of love and service toward one another and our neighbor. You can't skip the theology and just go right to doing the good. And it is not enough for us to merely come once a week to hear a 35, 40-minute sermon to stave off all the lies of the world, all the deceptions, all the contrary messages you're going to hear throughout the entire week. We need to be in the Word of God and steeped in it. This is why we have the Bible studies and community groups and why we pray together. This is not, I don't get an extra paycheck because more people show up to a thing. We just need to do this, right? It's not enough to stave off the lies coming at our children. We need the Word of God. It is what animates our lives. It's what animated Paul's life. We have to fix our eyes on God in a world that wants us to look at everything but Him. We have have 125 kids in this church. Next week, we're going to have like 425, right? What do they need the most? They need to know they're part of a church that, above all, worships the glory of God, that glorifies God, that makes Him central, above all other things. And it's in the common pursuit of that that the bonds of brotherhood form among God's people. Pursuit of the glory of God. So God works Israel's rejection for the salvation of the Gentiles, then he works the salvation of the Gentiles to bring about the further conversion of Jews, until both Jew and Gentile are united in Christ, one spirit, one lord, one baptism, one faith, one father. That is the goal that God is bringing things toward. Or maybe maybe to put it in parable form, A father has welcomed his Gentile prodigal son after wasting his inheritance back into his home. And as he welcomes him in, outside is the older brother who has always been there, scowling. How can you let him in? How can you show him such kindness? And as the older brother outside stares, scowling in unbelief, The father comes to him and says, all that I have is yours. I know you've always been with me. Just ask, and I'll let you come in. All that I have is yours. The adoption, the covenants, the glory, the law, the patriarchs, Christ himself, all that I have is yours. It's always been yours. And the parable of the prodigal son ends there, on a cliffhanger. I think Romans 11 is the ending to that parable. I think Romans 11 says that one day as he's watching his father show kindness to his younger brother, his heart will begin to soften. And he will see the joy of his younger brother and the grace of his father. And he'll wonder to himself, maybe there's a place for me. Maybe maybe I'm not so different from my younger brother. And maybe he'll open the door the Father will kiss him on the head, let him in, and then the real feast will begin. What a great hope. What a great God. That should be what animates us. That should be the hope that we have.